So hi everyone, welcome to the podcast. So today I'm joined by Jeremy, who is the VC at Monk Hill. So hi Jeremy, would you kind of be able to share a bit about your podcast, Brave Podcast, and what all you've been up to over there? Yeah, uh, I'm Jeremy. Uh, I'm a VC and chief of staff at Monk Hill Ventures, which is a Series A VC fund uh, in Southeast Asia. Uh, I also host uh, the Brave Southeast Asia Tech Podcast, uh, which is a similar podcast looking at tech and venture capital uh, and really looking at a no BS view on what it takes to build the future uh, and really learn from the best uh, Southeast Asia tech leaders. Uh, So the podcast uh, has grown to over 13,000 followers uh, and it's a great community for resources, transcripts and discussions. Uh, about what it takes to get there. Uh, and, uh, you know, you can listen more at www.bravesea.com uh, to, you know, obviously get, for example, a weekly uh, tech news uh, review about what's happening in Southeast Asia, the leadership profiles and some bonus Q&A episodes that we often have as well. That's amazing. You're doing an absolutely great job at highlighting the Southeast Asia ecosystem. And I think you're, you and Daryl and there are a few others out there who are true ecosystem builders for the region. And so really appreciative of what you guys are doing. So my next question to you is, so what's your take on kind of building connections through podcasting? Yeah, you know, I think uh, I think podcasting is an interesting medium, right? Because at the end of the day, the core... Uh, routine or behavior at the bottom of it, a fundamental level of it is a conversation one-on-one, right? You and I are having a one-on-one conversation. Um, and the truth of the matter is we could have had a conversation uh, over coffee uh, somewhere uh, or over Zoom or perhaps even at a dinner party, perhaps we could have had that conversation had a couple of people listen in, right? Two or three people listen in. Uh, and we can even scale that out, I mean, for example, to a fireside chat, right? Uh, where, you know, perhaps there's an event and there's like 20 people listening to us or even up to 100 people listening to us and you and I are having that uh, one-on-one conversation, right? Um, and I think the interesting thing about podcasts is that it makes it both asynchronous and, you know, scalable, right? Uh, first of all, it's asynchronous, right? Which is the most powerful part of it. You know, you don't have to be available on Wednesday night, seven o'clock, but at dinner, uh, to be part of the fireside chat or t- you know, go all the way to the event or you can be somewhere else. You can be listening to this uh, live. You can listen be listening to this uh, five days in the future. You can be listening to this 20 years in the future, right? Um, and you know, the asynchronous nature is so powerful of it. Um, and then the second level, of course, is really the scalable bit of it, right? In the sense that you know, there is that repeatability of it. Uh, you know, we don't have to have this conversation every single time someone wants to listen to it. Uh, and so, you know, as a result, I think podcasting is a great amplification for people who want to listen uh, and consume it. Uh, yet, I think from a production perspective, from a connection perspective, um, you know, I think it's really about having that one-on-one conversation at the end of the day um, with the knowledge that, you know, it can be replicated for the future and for future listeners. But, you know, I think it doesn't take away the fundamental core connection requirement, right? Um, and maybe down the road, there's some you know parasocial uh, connection that happens with listeners who listen in and get a sense of who you are, who Jeremy is, for example. Uh, but that's really much, I would say, a secondary downstream requirement. So I think you know, I think it's less make from podcasting, but more of like um, 
the connection DNA slash uh, root slash seed crystal that's at the core of the podcast that amplifies? My biggest takeaway was to have a connect the connection perspective and the one-on-one conversation. So my next question to you on podcasting is, so how do you invite guests onto your podcast and any tips and strategies for any kind of newbie and aspiring podcasters out there? Yeah, you know, I think everybody wants to do a podcast, right? Uh, in the sense that as long as you want to have a conversation with someone else and you would like to have a larger audience, right? So I think a lot of folks really want uh, to talk about podcasting. Um, and uh, I think that we have about three episodes on uh, www.bravesea.com that talks about why podcasts, how to invite guests, how to create a system. Uh, and there's also a further Q&A discussion about more advanced questions that people have um, that folks can listen to. Um, you know, I think for guests, you know, I think they're different styles. Um, for myself, it's quite straightforward. Uh, generally, I talk to people who I already know because my job and my passion brings me to lots of different conversations and I hang out with lots of different people. And I remember, um, you know, just having very delightful conversation with, uh, for example, Will Fun. Uh, he's the founder of a new campus which is an education tech professional skills uh, startup. And we had a wonderful dinner for a, a community of uh, brave Southeast Asia folks uh, about half a year ago, right? And, you know, uh, I remember it was a long dinner and, you know, we were talking to lots of different people and then only towards the end did we, he and I get to have a chance to chat, right? And then we had a wonderful conversation for half an hour Um and it left a mark on me, right? And six months down the road, uh, I was looking for guests in a sense that, you know, I had a buffer and I was looking ahead. I said to myself, like, okay, who did I enjoy having that connection moment with, right? That seed crystal for the podcast. And I was like, yeah, I, I still remember my conversation with Will, right? Um, and so, you know, I reached out to Will and said, hey, you know, I still remember that conversation we had uh, and it stuck with me. And I'd like to invite you to, you know, obviously go deeper into some of these issues that we talked about. Uh, and then we had a conversation, right? Um, and I think people enjoy the conversation because, you know, they felt like I already know him and he already knows me. And so there's, you know, you're not just listening for the content about who Will is, but you're also um, listening because you're listening for the warmth and the companionship that you can have, right? Uh, and so that tone and level of interest, I think, can be quite hard to fake, honestly, for most folks, unless you're a professional. <laughs> uh, but I think if you look at even the best, you know, folks like comedians and you know, guest interviewers, there's always some level of relationship that often already pre-exists some level. Um, doesn't have to be a lot, to be honest. It doesn't, it could be one meeting, it could be a few meetings. Uh, but I think that's so key to kind of getting um, there. And so I think for aspiring podcasters, I often say like, hey, you know, instead of trying to say like, who are the most interesting people in the country or the world? And let me try to interview them. Uh let's invert this a little bit, right? Like, you know, who in your network right now is the most interesting people that you can potentially do and then kind of like work your way uh, from there for and find out what kind of conversations animate you, what kind of guests animate you uh, and what kind of tone do you like uh, in your conversations, right? And those things are actually much more important uh, to discover early in your journey rather than um, the best uh, in that sense, uh, people that happen at the end of the day. I think my biggest takeaways were to start with your network and have a pre-existing relationship. So now I wanted to pivot away from all the podcasting talk and into more 
SEA and um, venture capital and other areas. So my first question to you, so how do you get more involved in the SEA ecosystem? And this is kind of a question that, a burning question that I have as well. Well, the good news is obviously Asia Tech System is looking for people like you, right? You know, technology in the future uh, are very scary things in the sense that, you know, there's a lot of change. You know, there's obviously artificial intelligence and generative AI and ChatGPT, for example, is a big way of change. You know, we have nuclear fusion. We have, you know, digitization of, you know, B2B and a lot of business functions. There's a lot of change. Uh, that's honestly very scary to most people in the world, right? Um, you know, for existing businesses, incumbent uh, commercial enterprises and approaches. Um, and, you know, the technology industry is looking for people who aren't scared of that change, who are willing to not only just learn about it, but also go native in it and bring that change and channel that future into existence. Um, and, because of that, you know, technology has always been looking for people. And if you raise your hand and say, I'm willing to learn, I'm willing to be there, um, the truth is uh, you will find a job and role in technology industry uh, very easily because, um, you know, it's you are basically saying, uh, you know, my vote is to build the future uh, rather than to preserve the, the present status quo, right? And that's actually a very rare uh, talent mind. Amazing. So I think my biggest takeaway is to be willing to learn and to be present, be there, as you said. And so my next question is, how do you raise capital as a founder versus as a VC fund? Like anything you could share on that? Oh, well, it's actually a question that I laugh and enjoy because um, I think a year ago, I think I might say that question is a little bit foolish to compare. Uh, maybe, well, maybe a couple of years ago, and then I think now, having been venture capital, I think I think there's some similarities as well. Um, I I think where the similarities are is that when you're raising money for a startup or you're raising money for a venture capital fund, you are both uh, raising capital for the future. And what that means is that at some level, you are taking money from a limited partner or some rich uh, entity, right? And you're basically telling them that we have a dream of investing in companies that will become you know, a billion dollars, for example, in 10 years. And the re reason why it's able to do that is that it's able to not only uh, see the future, but channel that vision and execute on that and build that within 10 years instead of it maybe having taken 20 or 50 years without us existing, right? Uh, the only difference, of course, is that um, the startup is making that promise on an individual level. We're just saying, I'm going to do it this way and I have this vision and approach to do it. And this is my one company that's going to be that part of that future. Or you can be a VC fund, for example, right? And you could be uh, saying, I'm going to find the founders who are going to build this future and I'm going to invest in 20 companies that channel that future. And so from a fundraising perspective, actually both startups and VCs will have, you know, decks, right? That explain this narrative, this approach, this uh, you know, competitive differentiation, uh, why they think they will make money, right? And so I think there's a very lot of similarity. And I think the truth of the matter is that, you know, uh, for example, some VC funds, they raise 20 million or $100 million fund. Uh, and the truth is there are some middle stage startups that will also raise $20 million or $100 million as a fund uh, when they're in their, you know, Series B, Series C, Series D, right? And so actually there's a lot more similarity uh, of the fundraising process. The only difference, of course, is that startups are 
talking to VCs and is a single company that you're making investments um, versus a VC fund would be targeting limited partners uh, on average, but will also be uh, saying that they have a portfolio approach. They're investing in 20 bets on that future, right? And I think that's the core difference. Uh, but then, you know, when you talk about the repetitions, the execution tactics, there's actually a lot of similarities that uh, come out. Yeah, I think my biggest takeaway was this crux of all of it, which is building for the future from both the VC side as well as as a founder. So my next question to you is, how do you find LPs and institutional investors for your VC fund? Well, uh, the answer is quite similar actually to founders um, in the sense that um, there's a universe, right? And what I mean by that is there's a universe of institutions and family offices and rich individuals and even perhaps friends and family, right? Who are looking to invest in uh, venture capital as an asset class. Of course, I think what's different about venture capital as an asset class is that it's a private uh, market return. So it's similar to private equity. Uh, you know, you have to have to keep that capital uh, put away, right? Effectively for, uh, you know, 10 years or the lockup period. Um, the returns are superior to the public markets right now uh, and has been for the past 30 years. Uh, and so it's a very compelling, uh, you know, investment uh, advantage and decision uh, for lots of folks who are looking to invest money after they've finished investing in, uh, you know, stocks, bonds, uh, real estate, et cetera, right? And so um, at the end of the day, therefore, I think, uh, you know, they're out there, right? They tell people that they're limited partners. They tell that they're institutions. They tell that they're looking for fund managers. So you just have to reach out to them and then, you know, put together, you know, the same reps as you would as a founder, right? You know, you put together the, the universe, you put together lists, you prioritize them by priority one, priority two, priority three. You have conversations with all of them. You tell them why you're different. You tell them why you're, you're different and better. And, and then, you know, they make a decision about which PC. Uh, I think you shared a good three-step approach of universe, priorities, and decisions. So my next question to you, so what's the investment thesis of Monk VC? And yeah, anything you could share on that? So, you know, I think in venture capital, uh, for us, uh, we are big believers of Southeast Asia, right? Uh, and that's our biggest thesis. We're believers that, uh, you know, Southeast Asia as a region, uh, the time has come uh, over the past, uh, you know, 10 years. Uh, but more importantly, over the next 100 years, right? And what that means is that um, Southeast Asia is obviously a huge population of, you know, hundreds of millions of people who are young, uh, uh, upwardly mobile, aspirational, uh, tech-first, digitally savvy. Um, and more importantly, uh, not many folks have built for it. Uh, obviously, there have been waves of founders that have built for it. Uh, founders from across the world, as well as a new generation of you know local founders who are really starting to build uh, for the local problems, right? And uh, for example, of course, Facebook, you know, for with WhatsApp is probably the number one messaging platform in Southeast Asia, right? Uh, outside Vietnam. And uh, okay, that's obviously an example where Southeast Asia is very permeable, right, to communication apps, and there's a huge network effect to that. But when it comes to uh, local, uh, for example, uh, logistics, right, e-commerce enablement, uh, you know, serving the middle class, a lot of those things have not yet been built in um, global multinational corporations have not, right? And so companies like NinjaVed, for example, have been tremendous in making it able, for example, 
um, to transport a package door-to-door um, in a city uh, for a dollar, right? And isn't that crazy? Like a package that you send can be sent for a dollar. Like that's, you know, if you did it yourself, you know, and if included your gas and your own personal time, you know, you would probably be an order of magnitude, right? Than a dollar, right? Uh, and so, uh, but that frictionless um, logistics network that you and I take now for granted in some parts of Southeast Asia, not all yet, uh, enables e-commerce to happen, right? Which is, you know, people can buy online safely with, with the knowledge that their items are not damaged, but also feel like they can do returns uh, if they don't like the product, right? Uh, which is the fundamental for e-commerce to take off. And with e-commerce taking off as a platform, then suddenly you're allowed to have uh, e-commerce brands to take off. Then you're allowed to have you know direct-to-consumer brand aggregators take off. You have e-commerce enablement, logistic partners taking off, right? So this spread of uh, chain of you know incremental, you could say, uh, ideation, but generational execution. Uh, is kind of key uh, and I think really crazy, right? And and all of that's happening at light speed, right? Uh, and so I think um, there's a lot of tremendous opportunities in Southeast Asia that we're excited to find founders who that we want to invest in. That's amazing that you guys invest into Southeast Asia. And I've seen similar funds as well who also invest into the top founders of Southeast Asia. So my next question to you before we kind of go off into Melinda's questions are, how do you differentiate yourself among similar funds? So it's an interesting dynamic and, you know, something that uh, folks do think about. Uh, I think, of course, I think the most obvious one is that, you know, we believe uh, at, with all our heart uh, in entrepreneurs, backing entrepreneurs, right? Uh, that's our uh, mission statement. Uh, and, you know, it's in our DNA, right? So if you look at our VCs, everybody is a former founder, right? From the partners uh, to our, you know, principals and associates, everybody's a former founder. Uh, and I think that's important on three dimensions, right? One is that obviously the first of all is empathy, right? Um, which is that we understand what's it like to fundraise. We understand what's it like to have a good fundraising process. And we understand what's it like to have a bad that we're able to be thoughtful, I think, about um, what, honestly, from our perspective, is a good experience and make sure that we try to deliver it as much as possible, right? As much as humanly possible. So uh, I think that's uh, one part of it. The second, of course, is insights, right? Uh, in a sense that uh, we ourselves have built companies in a country, for example, in Indonesia, in Vietnam, in the Philippines, Um and we ourselves have built companies in logistics and education tech and fintech. And because we have that insight knowledge, uh, we're able to obviously provide value in the conversations even before we make the investment decision. But also, you know, when we sit down together and work together, I think we have a lot of value. And of course, third of all is mindset, right? You know, we are entrepreneurial. And what it means is that, you know, um, you know, we obviously, there's a set of investment decisions to be made, but I think we're willing to be entrepreneurial in a mindset to be, how do we, you know, approach the process? How do we um, do things differently? How do we help you? Um, I think there's a huge mindset as a company culture that happens when you have a whole bunch of former founders, rather than for, than for example, a group of investment bankers or a group of former technology executives, right? I think uh, everybody brings their former cultural DNA and training uh, into the company. So um, all in all, uh, you know, for us, we're entrepreneurs backing entrepreneurs. Um, and I think that being said, you know, 
we found that other VCs are very strong. They are able to find and pick great companies. And there are many great companies who prefer working with their approach and their DNA uh, and their style, right? Uh, and so I think that's really, um, I think the fundamental part is, you know, I think it's great, right? When I was a founder in the US for my second company, uh, the truth of the matter was that it was awesome to have, you know, a hundred different VC funds to, uh, you know, and to some extent, it was the VC's problem to be differentiated in that sense. Uh, but from a founder perspective, it was awesome to have a hundred VC funds to learn from, to meet, uh, and to fundraise from, right? Uh, The truth of the matter is that, uh, you know, not every VC fund, uh, not every VC fund uh, is able to support you in the future. But in aggregate, the ecosystem, you know, the the, the number hundred, you know, VC funds times twenty bets, you know, can really provide that value, right? So I think it's also actually uh, from ecosystem perspective is great, you know. Uh, VC funds should struggle to differentiate themselves because that means there's lots of capital and it means there's lots of bets going on on great founders want to build a future. Um, and, you know, uh, this is how competition and differentiation uh, helps startups stay nimble and start building future. So should, um, you know, VC funds. I think my biggest takeaway is the three-pronged approach that you shared of empathy, inside knowledge and mindset as a way that you had Monk Hill Venture Capital firm have been able to differentiate yourself amongst the other SEA-focused funds here in Singapore and abroad as well. So my next questions to you are, to wrap this conversation up, are some questions from Melinda Chu. So her first question is, are there trends of startups getting funded different in Southeast Asia versus, say, the United States? Yeah, and I think it's a really good question because, you know, you could also flip and invert a question, right, which is... How are U.S. startups different, right, than the kind of companies that are being funded all around the world, right? Uh, and I think that's really um, the crux of it, actually, because I think the U.S. is a very special country, right? It had was the birthplace of venture capital and the startup uh, methodology uh, because of the availability of capital, right? Um, and so there's, the startups that we think about today are very much based on that U.S. DNA. So, for example, um, you know, there are so many waves of startups in the U.S. that were focused on, you know, digital business productivity, right? Because, you know, the cost of labor in America is high, uh, i.e. the GDP per capita. Uh, but also the cost of labor has continued to rise in America over time, right? Tremendously due to tighter immigration, uh, due to, you know, kind of like subsidies um, and inflation, and because of that, the, the push and incentive for companies to further digitize has been accelerating. And so B2B SaaS continues to be a very strong requirement for companies and therefore a great wave and trend for startups to be funded in the US, right? Whereas I think Southeast Asia is similar to other emerging markets on the rest of the world, right? In the sense that there are low there yet, right? And I think a great way to look at this is really at the GDP per capita, right? And so I think what we're looking at is when we're about, you know, say, for example, between, say, five to $10,000 GBTP per capita, for example, um, there's often, I think, a very good way to start looking at it stage by stage, then to 20 to 40 to 60, right? These different stages are often in small inflection points for when, you know, companies actually start getting interested, for example, uh, in the cost of labor and how to become more effective with their labor, right? Which means bringing in productivity tools. So, for example, if your economy is very low income, 
then you're probably thinking about much more fundamental problems. You're probably thinking about water, food, you know, agriculture, right? These very fundamental problems that you have, right? Uh, and you're not thinking about B2B SaaS, you're not thinking about artificial intelligence. You know, those are all different, you know, applications that you have, right? But as you kind of climb up the GDP per capita, the national income, the mass hierarchy of needs, uh, the, you know, uh, productivity of your companies, then different aspects go there. So for example, in Southeast Asia, you know, obviously Singapore is as rich as uh, the US and it's actually richer than the UK, you know, on a GDP per capita basis, right? Um, and Malaysia and Thailand are not far behind, right? Uh, as well as highly educated as well. And so, you know, for those markets, obviously, um, their requirements in terms of startups are similar to some extent uh, because of their domestic requirements, but also they have the ability to build teams that are looking at global problems because um, global problems, the teams can be based anywhere, right? Uh, so I think there's the two types of companies that happen there. Uh, whereas, for example, in Indonesia, in um, the Philippines, for example, then there's, a you know, or you can actually even break it out, right? I think there are richer parts of, it, of uh, Indonesia and there are poorer parts of Indonesia, right? And so the type of problems between the urban-rural divide are very different, right? And fundamental. So I think the trends of startups as a result of Southeast Asia, I think I would say are really two categories. I think, well, three categories. The first category, obviously, is similar problems that US startups are going for, global problems, because teams can come from anywhere. They just happen to be based in Southeast Asia. Um, the second category is um, companies that are helping Southeast Asia companies become more Western or globalized, you know, so there's that tier of catch-up or localization. You can call it cloning as well, but there's some uh, copy-paste, but there's also some uh, inversion and acceleration of a known future. But a third, I think that's really interesting is that there's a whole bunch of founders who are building for very deep local problems that the U.S. never had to solve, right? So for example, in agricultural tech, for example, in the U.S., the way that America solved it with productivity, for example, was they just mechanized it and then they built irrigation systems with pipes right and then they you know bought and structured the land very systematically um you know to make them commercial right whereas now in southeast asia for example agriculture does hasn't a lot of it has not even gotten to that basic level and so now they're being forced to skip pipelines for example and trucks and um hardware but maybe they have to go all the way to drones right uh, so they have that generational shift, but the problem is a fundamentally very uh, solved problem that no American startup is really going for because they never had to deal with that local market problem, but that we definitely see in Southeast Asia. So uh, those are the three types that we're seeing. So I think my biggest takeaways from what you've shared today are the three categories. So the first category is the simple similar problem and global as well. The second one was companies helping Southeast Asia and the third was deep local problems. So it was an absolute pleasure and an honor to host you on the podcast today. You're most welcome and it was an absolute pleasure and an honor to have you on the on the podcast today. Thank you so much. I appreciate uh, hearing from you. It was an absolute pleasure and I, I'm really glad that uh, we got a chat. Uh, for folks who want to hear more into some of these conversations, uh, for example, we recently talked about who we think are the biggest winners and losers for this coming year's uh, tech news and our predictions for it uh, and our contrarian beliefs. Uh, that was a really fun episode that we had, for example, with uh, the managing partner of Hasafun, uh, Shiyan Ko. Um, and um, 
the other uh, tech leader portraits that we do as well. So if you're interested in joining the community, uh, feel free to go to www.bravesea.com um, for transcripts, resources, and community. So thanks so much.